I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Elena Lezik. On the show this week, 10 films in and Jigsaw still has tricks up his sleeve in Saw X. It's battles of humans versus AI in The Creator, and I spoke to its director, Gareth Edwards. And on Film Club, we revisited the room where it all began in 2004 Saw. We also have Little White Lies editor David Jenkins talking to us about all the latest from San Sebastian's festival. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. God, it feels after, well, it doesn't feel like it has been months and months and months of us like lamenting how this like strike is going to never end. And it's also terrible for everyone. And like, it's so weird in a way to have good news. It's over. I mean, SAG is still striking, but the WGA strike is over. Half over. Yeah. One more battle to fight and then uh, back to relative normalcy for for everyone that's yeah it's good news yeah they got a good deal i'm i'm very happy for the writers and proof that unions are powerful and striking works which i feel like in the uk everyone needs a reminder of because we've forgotten the power of the labor force (laughs) yeah it's interesting because when it was announced that the strike was ending all i saw was like the strike is over and i didn't see like anyone being like we got what we wanted i just saw the strike is over we can go back to work you know it wasn't like I was kind of worried. I was like, okay, well, the strike's over, but like, did they get what we wanted? Did they, is this is this a good thing? And then it turns out apparently it is. You were saying they like that. Apparently, uh, I haven't had time yet to to read through what they got accepted, but apparently it is excellent, and they got all their demands met. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's. I think there's always that thing with negotiations of like you ask for a bit more, uh, but you know what you'd actually accept. So I think some things it does look like they've taken a step down on slightly, but they're actually. It, I think for the most part, those were like negotiation tactics. Yeah, what I'm seeing is that people are absolutely thrilled with the deals that they that they got, like minimums in um, writers' room. I think at one point they were asking for eight, and they maybe got five. The you know, residual stuff was great. Like, of like second step things because that was a real problem for a time where they would just cycle in newbies pay them minimums and there would be nowhere to like progress to once you actually got success as a writer so yeah 
Great news. Very cool. Well, I mean, yeah, so fingers crossed the actors will get the same and we don't have to entirely rely on AI driven images for or Martin uh, to Scorsese. To d- Martin Scorsese doing press for this movie that poor the, the poor man. It's all on him. Not that Robert De Niro is the most talkative press presence in the world, but um it has been funny watching this lovely Marty do do all these press rounds on his own. I feel like he, he he must have a lot of energy in him because God, if I was getting asked like every two days about my feelings about Marvel movies, I would not be as kind of courteous and responsive as he seems to be. <laughs> I honestly, um, I, I vote that we strike until, and our terms are simply that nobody's allowed to ask that question anymore. It's ridiculous. <laughs> if one of the most important filmmakers that's ever lived, who's got decades of work ahead of him, making great stuff still, and you're asking him about Marvel again, just to get a clickbaity headline, <laughs> drives me crazy. But anyway, um, some nice stuff. I mean, I almost had to mute Martin Scorsese on my social media uh, and it didn't quite come to that. But at least so I was able to like get the good news of the strike ending at least. Yeah. And some other good news that is worth announcing. Um, I think we briefly mentioned it last week, but we're doing a live podcast at the BFI London Film Festival. So yeah, on Friday, the 6th of October at five o'clock, if you head down to Gallery at OXO, uh, which is by the Sea Containers, you will be able to come and watch us talk about some of the great movies these at the LFF and also we have some very exciting guests and interviewers which are going to be happening live and it should be really good fun so hope many of you are able to pop down and hang out with us and it's free yes it is also yeah. free <laughs> so we should definitely mention that and it's I think it's about 30 people capacity so you know arrive on time to secure a seat but yeah it'll be fun it'll be we've we've done live podcasts before it's always a nice time always uh, a bit lively a bit different yeah it'll be it'll be fun yeah, everyone come heckle Hannah. Be great. <laughs> <laughs> I can take it. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, we should just... Speaking of things that people can take... Sorry, that is such a bad segue, but like, I couldn't help but try and link that. I think it's quite good. <laughs> okay, speaking of all that humans can endure <laughs> under the right circumstances, uh, we should move on to our first movie. It's Saw X. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady 8Q page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Weeks after the events of the original Saw, John Kramer travels to Mexico after learning of a potential miracle cure for his terminal cancer. There he finds new purpose, and the infamous serial killer lives, live vivisects, and loves on his trip abroad. So, Elena, 10 movies in. How has your relationship with Saw been? Have you been a fan of them generally? Have you felt that they dropped off? Have you loved every single one or hated them? So my my relationship with the Saw franchise is very particular because I can't say I'm necessarily a fan, but I've kind of, in the same way that so many of the people that John Kramer gives a, a chance rediscovering the value of life, I have been in a way, forced to watch these films a lot, and I've learned to love them. Basically, me, my boyfriend, and our, and our friends, we have this tradition of watching two Saw films every Christmas day. Uh, so I've seen most of them at least twice, some of them three times. And that might sound like it would be boring, but it really isn't, because one of the, the things about the Saw franchise that I feel like isn't really that well known by, you know, by people who are like, oh yeah, Saw is the guy who, like, you know, 
the traps and all that is that it's extremely com- complicated the sort of like narrative and and the, the the characters and several times in the franchise you have you watch something and you think it's happening at a certain time but it's actually happening before the events of another film that you're supposed to remember and there are characters that look exactly the same and just the whole like chronology of it is so complicated and then also the whole fact the fact that some people seem to be victims but actually they turn out to be in on it and like it's just such a complicated franchise so watching them every time is like every time you learn something new uh, every time you remember something new and yeah so I I have a sort of fondness for them and I've I think it's those films that are responsible for me no longer being squeamish at all at horror movies like the extreme of the horror like the extremeness of the horror that now just makes me laugh and it used to be like I just could it used to do I guess the intended uh <laughs> reaction which was like hiding from the screen and like feeling terrible and you know uh, protecting whichever part of the body that I was seeing destroyed on screen and now they just really really make me laugh so yeah that's uh, the long and short of it that's my relationship with Saw (laughs) yeah I do sometimes find myself watching the later Saws and thinking like I bet they really regret that they established that he only had a few months to live like if they'd given him two years they could have just really had quite a much more straightforward way of like keeping these these movies going absolutely they painted themselves into a corner really because like after Saw 2 and well I mean he dies in at the end of Saw 3 is it I have um, no idea I've, I've, I've literally just watched like the first six again and I already the details of yeah. the plot have kind of like gone out of my head they all blend but, into uh, each other it's crazy they do you do forget when things happen like Elena that's kind of like why I like rewatching them because I just forget what happened and I'm, I'm surprised again. It's quite rare as a, as a film watcher to rewatch something and be like, oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> this one's a sequel, this one's a prequel. I mean, the inventive thing of just having some of them happening simultaneously. Yeah. I think it's really quite clever. So yeah, good. yeah, and and the the kind of retconning of Spiral, the um, Chris Rock penned spin-off that he it kind of took place in the Saw universe, but wasn't connected to Saw in from any the, way. From the page, the book of Saw, from the book of Sp- Saw, a Spiral from the book of Saw. <laughs> yeah, like the book of Henry. Um, uh, yeah, that the, they kind of just ignore that film existing in this one, which I guess makes sense because this is set way before that one i again i feel like you need like a kind of cork board with like string attached to it to like understand who everyone is how they're involved but the main the main people you need to know are jigsaw and amanda his apprentice who has a consistently terrible haircut in every single film and um is progressively throughout the franchise kind of becomes more unhinged and this one it's actually quite nice because she seems more rational by comparison (laughs) Um, and I felt that Shawnee Smith kind of like it, it was nice to see her get like an actually kind of character beyond kind of oh yeah she's Jigsaw's deranged sidekick <laughs> um, it was like oh she's actually got some kind of moral conflict in this film about what she's doing particularly because one of the other characters in the film victims shall we say <laughs> is a drug addict and Amanda kind of feels some sympathy because she, she was also a drug addict which is why Jigsaw targeted her in the first place so I kind of like they do try and do some you know kind of world 
world building here, which uh, I enjoyed. But I was also laughing a lot during this film. The kind of it's like Looney Tunes levels of violence. Um, it's just so ridiculous. There's no kind of oh my god, it looks so real. You're just kind of like, what had to go wrong with you as a person to think of this? To think of like, hmm, what if we attach vacuums to someone's eyes? Like it's just, it, it, it's just so silly. You kind of I can't help but like laugh and have a really good time with it i think it's funny on purpose though yeah exactly i think the film is on that level because you know you have these moments when john crime is just sitting around you know whatever and then he's on his notepad he's, he's actually designing the most disgusting looking traps you know <laughs> but he's just some old man you know sitting outside so i think it's like yeah as you were saying Leila, i think it's like intentionally kind of funny and playing with the 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 sort of extreme between this old man and then the horrible things he's like conjuring. So yeah, it's kind of nice because it feels like it's in on the joke in a way, which is lovely. In on the joke, but not in a kind of, you know, something like Deadpool where it gets like so self-referentially just kind of like, oh my God, this film is so pleased with itself. And so like, haha, look how cool I am. I'm like nudging the audience. And I actually think that Saw X manages to strike a balance between like having a sense of humour and acknowledging the kind of ridiculousness of its premise, but not going too far where it becomes like this entirely self-referential thing. There are some very like funny, if you know, you know moments where like John Kramer is asked like, oh, do you, do you, you know, kind of what, tell me about yourself. Like, what do you do? Um, and he's like, well, I'm, I've been an architect and a civil, <laughs> civil engineer for many years. <laughs> and now I have some hobbies. <laughs> and we're all just like, we know what those hobbies are. <laughs> and yeah, the, as Elena mentioned, the, the, the wonderful scene where he's just like sitting on a park bench. It's really like lovely, like sunlight. And it pans down and he's just like designing like this horrific like bear trap. <laughs> he's just, just kind of like, like I, I, Jigsaw is one of the kind of great horror villains because he really is just like like Michael Myers or um, Freddy Krueger or even Hannibal Lecter. It's kind of like there's no like interiority there he's just an insane man (laughs) who wants to do like really messed up things to people and um you know his internal logic you can't follow it because it doesn't make any sense like he's like oh i I, i'm teaching people the value of life i don't kill anyone it's like but but you, you do though you do you do that jigsaw yeah and like who's gonna teach you the value of life it's <laughs> like this doesn't seem like a very good way to be spending your time <laughs> it's funny yeah he's point. like given months to live and he's just like well better get killing like and even though this one because it's like in the trailer we learned that um the whole premise is that he is scammed by this group of um nefarious medical con men and women and one of the one of the funny things in the film is that this idea that he was scammed by this group of um, medical con men and women and he somehow has time to set up this very elaborate trap factory i don't know like how long this takes him how how he has time to build all this whilst like very sick like clearly dying of cancer um and like lure everyone back and like kidnap everyone i was just like kind of like this guy's time management is like off the scale like he's so efficient and that more than anything i was impressed by his work ethic (laughs) you know can't, can't be faulted maybe that's why he needed you know if he has a project then he like gets his energy up and he's like yeah you know he needs someone to do something horrible to him or that he sees and he's like 
getting his energy. He's like, yes, I can do something about this. I'm going to do a truck. You know, that's his little project. You know, he's like an old man. He needs a little project to to keep going. You know, but it's interesting what you were saying about how like his logic doesn't add up and he can't follow through because I actually think this film. And I'm not going to reveal too much because it's like uh, the best thing about the movie. I think it, there is a point where he is sort of kind of something happens and he's confronting like the the danger of his traps in a way that I've never seen before, where it's like, you're actually out. I was proper, like, what the fuck? Like, this is so horrible. Like, what's going on? And uh, even him him and Amanda are, like, freaking out. They're like, what's going on? Like, no, no this is not the plan. This is not what we intended. And I, I, I thought that was such a nice touch. I think the film does so many things like this that are, like, very much keeping with the, the rules. And I know, like, the rules of Saw are very important to Saw fans, obviously, as they should be. But at the same time, like really stretching them and showing like the finding challenges for all of them in a really fun and dramatic way, like a movie, like a proper movie. You know, it's not you're not just sitting there being like, oh, yeah, what's the trap? Are we going to make it? Yeah. Yes, there is that. But there's also like a lot of stuff of like, oh, should they do this? Like, does this person deserve this test? But also, what does this mean for this and this? And what if something unexpected happens? Like in a way that I've not really seen in the other films. So in a way, like even though the film is such a kind of a throwback to the earlier Saw films, like even in the the look of it and, you know, the presence of uh, John Kramer, at the same time for me, it felt like a step forward in terms of like, they take it seriously and they actually make a really suspenseful and dramatic film out of it, almost in like an old fashioned movie way. Like they, they actually, although they have this like crazy basis where they could just make a film where it's like just traps and people, horrible people being killed. It's actually much more than that. And uh, yeah, I was so pleasantly surprised. Yeah, this this feels like a really smart direction for this franchise to kind of pivot in. It felt when I was watching God, Spiral from the Book of Saw. That title is even just painful to say. Like the, it was made by people that had no idea what was what actually worked about the first ones. And with this, I mean, they understand that we've spent so long with this guy. It's been 19 years since the first one. We just have a level of affection to him. And part of that comes down to that he's extremely good at his job and that's difficult to not admire. <laughs> so, you know, now that we're coming into it, it's not going to be like doing the original Saw. We have a level of like love for this character we are kind of rooting for him. And so it makes sense to kind of lean into the comedy of it all rather than kind of have it be this like really horrible, relentlessly grim confrontation. Also, there's this idea that this is set between Saw and Saw 2. So Jigsaw's not, like, he's he's killed some people, obviously, but, like, there's a kind of, like, I guess, rudimentaryness to, like, some of the traps. Like, he's kind of just figuring it out a bit, and, like, Amanda obviously is not quite on the proper level of being an apprentice. So they're having to actually do something quite difficult which is like put the film in the context of like what comes after it and I actually was surprised at how seriously they took it because this franchise sometimes has felt a little hokey shall we say (laughs) I think actually the director Kevin uh, Grutert who has been at the heart of the franchise for a very long time he edited I think all of the other Saw films or apart from Spiral maybe he's definitely been involved in pretty much every single Saw film Um, I think it's very clear like the kind of affection and care and knowledge he has of the franchise has really um, enabled him to like give this this entry some proper like heft and weight. And it didn't just feel like two hours of torture porn. It, it actually, I think, is less violent than some of the entries in the franchise. And yeah, I was just kind of impressed 
between like the balance of like actual story and the kind of silly traps that we all kind of know and love though i will say like my one kind of issue with the film is that the last back half of the traps are not not that exciting there's some really good ones and some very weak ones it isn't like i i just was kind of hoping for a little bit a little bit more innovation in that respect but um you know i'll take it in the kind of context of like what i think is a very very fun entry into the franchise otherwise yeah I, I was cautiously optimistic when it was announced that it was going to be um uh, kevin goethe because i ride hard for saw six it's really good jigsaw takes on medical insurance as an industry oh, that one is good so him. great yeah no there's been a, he did also do saw 3d which i would say aside from spiral from the book of saw i just can't say it it's painful aside from spiral from the book of saw is probably like the nadir of the of the franchise for me yeah i mean it's actually like interesting because one of the best traps in this film i think is kind of a throwback to something that happens in saw 3d with like the brazen bull and they kind of like they don't revisit it because technically this would be before the events of saw 3d <laughs> but um yeah i thought that was kind of a nice touch <laughs> though i do wonder about the culture appropriation element of like or going to Mexico and been like, hmm, interesting things going on in Mexico. How can I incorporate this into my traps? Like, I was a bit like Jigsaw. <laughs> and I know, they do I was that, surprised by that. What and the the, they do that thing where, you know, when someone goes to a, a foreign country in a film and they slap on a yellow filter so you can tell it's really <laughs> Like, they do, they do that as well. And I was like, oh my God, I can't tell if they're doing that as like a funny kind of like throwback to the way like colour is used in the other Saw films or if it's just like, you know, something they haven't quite clocked is, is quite a pervasive uh, trope in, in filmmaking. But yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a really, if you're into this kind of film, it's a one of the kind of better examples and Tobin Bell is just such a great screen presence I, I I love watching him I find him so compelling as an actor and this character now like John Kramer I think is one of the kind of all-time greats in horror I just yeah I think he's so dry and funny and needlessly cruel but also I'm rooting for him but also, yeah, people I mean, keep saying to him good luck and I'm like yeah good luck good luck John like yeah I hope you do beat cancer I know you won't I know exactly how this is gonna go but um but yeah even with that even knowing how things go like having the knowledge of the soul franchise it's kind of like but what if he does beat cancer and go on to to like have many, many more years of needless violence against people he he deems morally as uh, suspect in some way. <laughs> well, we can we can always make more prequels or whatever that are set. I guess this is supposed to be what like uh, a few weeks after the first. So we could do it. I don't know a few weeks before this one and and after the first. So, like we could just add more films between so one and two, <laughs> forever. You know that's fine. That's fine by me. I don't mind. Yeah, I got the impression that like a couple of months pass during this so we could have some simultaneous plenty of time there's plenty of time for him to make many more traps that we haven't seen yet (laughs) he's very prolific (laughs) if anything like you know what he can do in a very short space of time is impressive so and i would love to like have some of the old characters come back uh i really enjoyed there's a little cameo i'm not gonna spoil it in the mid credit scene which i was waiting the whole film for because i soon there was a phone call very early on and i was like oh i know who he's talking to on the phone and um when he popped up i was really excited so I, I'm, I would be super happy if we got some more mid installments because also I, I want to see more Tobin Bell. That's the thing. That's the problem. Like I, I don't want to have a Saw film set after his death anymore because he's like the heart of the franchise. And there are some loose ends in this film that kind of imply they might be like setting up. I don't know what would it be now. Like Saw 
2.5 or something like <laughs> <laughs> we're getting into like lion king like uh 3.5 territory at this point it's just kind of like okay like how can we squeeze another one in but i i'm down for it now i'm like i'm like fully back on board like no more chris rocks spin-offs let's just keep it like keep it simple squeeze some more stuff into the franchise one thing they could do if they're really struggling with like how to bring tobin bell back they could just fucking do multiverse like everybody else is doing it <laughs> just do so multiverse and be like there's a reality where he you know lives and doesn't have and like and just you know i think no one would mind honestly we've we've suffered through such complicated plots that we wouldn't mind a multiverse so maybe he does a trap that just that opens if he a... put his mind to it he could invent that machine in a fortnight absolutely that is <laughs> exactly this is like if someone can do it it's, it's john kramer you know just do the bit you know the bit in um star wars where uh, oscar isaac's character <laughs> is like captioned saying somehow palpatine returned just be like somehow jigsaw returned. <laughs> don't worry don't, don't worry about it too much like don't, just just kind of go with it which is what we have to do with the franchise anyway just just like just, just 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 don't think too hard you can think a little bit but not like too hard and, and just have have a good time oh i could talk about this all day with you guys <laughs> i just had so much fun i mean it did remind me of my the most infuriating thing on the franchise for me which is like if you set up somebody with terminal cancer that's how they have to die <laughs> and it really bugs me that that is not actually how jigsaw goes out but yeah, <laughs> that's not that's not this film's fault mm. you got to take up that up with like saw three or four i can't remember which one he actually <laughs> dies in but like that did annoy me at the time now i've kind of made my peace with it um, because it is like quite funny like he's literally minutes away from dying anyway <laughs> the guy just like walks in with a at all times like, a, like a, at all he, times he, he's minutes away open yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so really plays him on the edge <laughs> uh so elena do you want to go first with your in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Uh, I guess anticipation, I would say four, because I was uh, very excited to see John Kramer again. And I've kind of, I mean, I know people don't really like Spiral, but for me, I had kind of a good time with it, even though it was such a different film from everything else. I was kind of like enjoying how sort of innovative it was. And just, I, I kind of liked the idea of it more than the actual film. I think I was, I was expecting something way more like, you know, trying way more fun things and stuff. And like basically a film that was inspired by the spirit of Saw, but it had nothing to do with Saw. And in the end, it was kind of a bit disappointing, but I was up for it. And I was up for this film in the same way. Um, so four. And then enjoyment, I would say like, yeah, the same four and retrospect four as well. Because it's still, I think, maybe it's not like the absolute best, but it's so good. And and as, I mean, we've been talking about it for like half an hour. So it's a, it's a pretty solid film and uh, there's loads of fun stuff and loads of like, it's quite intelligent as well. At the same time, it doesn't look down on its audience. And yeah, and it's very exciting for what it suggests that they might do if they do more of them. So yeah, I'm a fan. Oh, Hannah, where are you? Continuing as a sore head. We've had some troubled years, but like now you feel energized by this one. Yeah, I I was convinced like this would be good at least, just because I think like Tobin Bell coming back was a real like okay. I think he actually cares about the franchise and like wants to you know give give Jigsaw a kind of um, worthy you know storyline. So so that kind of yeah, I was excited for that. So for an anticipation, for an enjoyment, 
I had a great time. I mean, I was laughing. I was really enjoying myself. I do think it's maybe there is there's a lot of periods of kind of downtime in this film, and that there maybe aren't in the in the other films. But overall, yeah, great great experience. And I think that's a four in retrospect. I I had a I had a really good time with it. I'm excited to see it again. Um, yeah, I, welcome back, Saw. That's kind of my take on it. I, I I hope they do make another one after this. I do too. Um, I think so long as Tobin Bell is up for it, I'd be first in line to see the next one. Uh, yeah, in anticipation for me, probably a two, because even though I love the franchise and I take a lot of pleasure even from its like lesser entries, Spiral from the Book of Saw, really, I really hated it <laughs> so much. But also for a moment, I thought maybe it was doing that thing of Halloween where it's just like, ignore every other sequel. This is just going to be the next one, which kind of felt a bit contemptuous of everything that came before. So very pleased to say that it didn't do that five of enjoyment I had it's not perfect but I had just like such a whale of the time and yeah maybe like a 3.9 in retrospect really really fun time with the movies and just like what a lovely surprise next up it's David Jenkins talking to us about all of the hottest titles happening at San Sebastian Well, hey there, you uh, movie truther types. I am here over in the San Sebastian in northern Spain, in the Basque country, celebrating the uh, San Sebastian Film Festival. This is my first time attending this amazing festival uh, set against the backdrop of one of the most incredible cities I've ever been to with um, extraordinary food, lots of uh, lovely tapas and pinchos, uh, a lovely beach that is sort of stretches behind the main uh, cinema and just just a really incredible old town and and the festival itself is is, is very well organised and there's a great vibe here. I totally recommend this festival for anyone wanting to sort of uh, do a bit of travelling next year. Yeah, so um, I've been seeing lots of movies, of course. Like most festivals, they have a competition dedicated to new works, world premieres, and I've been looking at a couple of those. The first one I saw is a film called Ex-Husbands by a director called Noah Pritzker, and it stars... The great Griffin Dunn, uh, who we know from, um, who many will remember from Martin Scorsese's After Hours. And he stars opposite his After Hours co-star, Rosanna Arquette, as a recently divorced man who goes on a trip to Tulum in Mexico and bumps into his son, played by James Norton, who is there on a bachelor party. And they have a bit of a uh, catch-up and... Uh, they do some a bit of bonding and there is some some sort of familial revelations that come out and it's a very charming film and and griffin dunn is is it gives this very kind of avuncular performance and yeah it's it's quite a, it's it's almost like a sort of very happy clappy version of a of a noah baumbach film about dysfunctional families and yeah very enjoyable maybe it'll kind of make its way over to to cinemas sometime um another film i saw was called MMXX by by the Romanian filmmaker Christy Puyu. MMXX is actually the Roman numeral for 2020, and this is a bit of a kind of survey of of life in that year via four like domestic scenes, and they were all the all the stories in this film were born out of actors' workshops. And, you know, they, they were sort of built out of actually, actually getting actors to improvise and work with Puyu to write a script. And 
Um, I mean, one of the themes in the film is it, it, that sits in the backdrop is the is the pandemic and I guess how the pandemic changed our lives on a domestic level. It's quite a tough film in the sense that it's very very wordy. It's all the scenes take place in quite enclosed spaces, but it's also got a lot of humour in it as well and and irony and and tonally it moves all over the map. Not one of his like best films ever, but like definitely got loads and loads of good stuff in it. And you know he is he is an incredible director. Also saw a film called A Silence by uh, the Belgian filmmaker Joachim Lafosse, who's done lots of films that Little White Lies have covered. Daniel Toy, he's a uh, big shot lawyer covering a child abuse, a very, very kind of public tabloidy child abuse case. His wife is Emmanuel DeVos, who's kind of quietly serving him in the background. And uh, it, uh, it transpires that, that Otoy himself, or, the, or his character is indeed, has, has his own uh, issues relating to, the, to the, the case, shall we say. And it's been kept a secret by his wife for, for 30 years. And uh, the film kind of captures the moment where it all comes to a head. It's, it's not an amazing film. It's a bit all over the place in terms of tone. And it's, it's, it feels a little bit sort of French drama slapdash. But yeah, it's a solid feature. Um, finally, I want to talk about a quick film called Un Amour by Isabelle Quazette, Quazette, I think, or Qu- I can't pronounce her surname, I'm really sorry. It stars Leia Costa as a woman who uh, leaves the city for the country, buys a ramshackle old house, is kind of lost and depressed, and then she enters into this strange sex-based love affair with a, a kind of hulking local man who give us, gives his services like as a as a as a handyman in uh, in exchange for uh, some uh, physical affection and it's a very it's a very silly film it plays like kind of mills and boone romance and Leia Costa's good despite the fact that the script and the story kind of lets her down but yeah, that's all from me. And yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, yeah, see you at the next festival. Ciao. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week, you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next up, it's the creator. Amidst a future war between the human race and the forces of artificial intelligence, Joshua, a hardened ex-special forces agent grieving the disappearance of his wife, is recruited to hunt down and kill the elusive architect of an advanced AI who has developed a mysterious weapon, power to end all of mankind, only to discover the world-ending weapon that he's been instructed to destroy is an AI in the form of a young child. But before we get into the film, I got to talk to its director, Gareth Edwards. I'm very excited to talk to you, Gareth. Hey, Layla, how you doing? Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I've been like, I was at the Science Museum screening and okay. I've just okay. been passing it over in my head ever since. I keep thinking of like new allegories for it. I mean, which ones did you have in mind? Because to me, the, I, I'm most kind of favourite about it being about the war on terror, i got to say. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> no, it was a, a whole bunch of allegories, to be honest. Like, I think in metaphors, like, I, I sort of annoy people. Every time I talk about anything, I always go, you know, it's like, and I pick a metaphor. And, and, I, and so, like, filmmaking-wise, I can't help but try and find the metaphor for each thing that we're doing. And especially with a science fiction film, people have a million questions all the time because it's like a future world and questions, you know, about stupid things they shouldn't have questions about. Like, how did they get from there to there? And it's like, I don't know, a car. And like, yeah, but was it a flying car? And how does the flying car work? And it's like, oh God, who cares? And so you get bombarded with stuff. And one of the fastest solutions is to pick something in the real world and say, it's like that, you know, the future. And so the war on terror was one of those things, like Afghanistan. The idea Osama bin Laden was kind of the creator in our movie. Mm-hmm. Was like you know, from one person's point of view, he's the um, you know public enemy number one, um, the person they're all trying to get and can't. And from the other perspective, like sort of celebrated. Well, in our movie, the AI think the creator is God, and so it's like a more it's a more extreme version of that. And 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 so. The idea of like a superpower with extreme, you know, advanced weaponry against a more guerrilla fighters, you know, on the ground. It's like, and, and I think whenever you made this film, if we made it like 30 years ago or some other era, people would say, oh, it's really timely because sadly we're just always doing that same kind of war somewhere in the world. So it wasn't like I had a big political agenda, but yeah, it's more like trying to find the real world equivalent of what's going on. I mean, that was one of the things I really appreciated about the film. You didn't kind of like spoon feed like exposition of like, this is exactly what everybody is and this is kind of their roles and this is how the tech works and stuff. You sort of, I mean, like is, is part of your ethos to assume the audience is intelligent enough to not need to be spoon fed every last detail about this world you're building. Or I'm I'm too stupid to do a good job of it, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my favourite kind of science fiction d- doesn't hold your hand the whole way through. Like you have a mil- like you, you should have just as many questions as you get answers. What's really difficult is to make a film like this. You have to do test screenings, so you show mm-hmm. it to like four hundred, five hundred people, and they all fill in these forms about what they loved and hated about the film. 
And the really brutal thing is you don't have time to read all what they loved because you have to usually get to back into the edit the next day. So you have to skim read all the things they didn't like or didn't work. And so you're constantly trying to address those things, but in such a way that you don't play to the, you know, the, the lowest common denominator. Mm. Um, and the studio are really supportive like that. They'd done films. So they'd, their background was they did movies like The Revenant and The Northman and The Lighthouse. And they're very filmmaker friendly, I think is the term. But so it was the right, it felt like the right place to do this with, because we didn't want to just do a cheesy blockbuster. You know, we wanted it to have a bit more about it if we could. Yeah. I mean, like I, one of the scenes that I enjoyed the most is um, not to give spoilers away to listeners, uh, but you know, the moment where they're kind of in a temple and you sort of see the integration of how like tech has done that, but you haven't done like a five minute, let me explain to you the way that simulants have like embraced um, religion. You know, like it, it was, it was much more kind of. Is it a, it's a visual language, I suppose. Is that the right way that you, to describe it? Yeah, I think it's a happy accident of shooting it the way we did. Like, I, spoiler, it's not a spoiler for the film; it's a spoiler for a shot in the movie. There's um, a scene where they go in a temple, and we actually tried to find the like most interesting temple interior that we could in the whole of Thailand. And there was this one which was called the Sanctuary of Truth. And it was basically all carved out of wood. And it looks stunning when you went inside it. And so all I'm doing is just looking at everything through a sci-fi lens. Mm -hmm. So the second you see all these like carvings of Buddhist iconography, you know, kind of carved into the wall, in my head, I'm thinking, well, that's going to be a robot, you know, carving. And so like, I got really excited about those sort of things. We do these little nice little dolly shots on, on some of this stuff. And then ILM turned it into robot equivalent, you know, as if, as if they had had for a thousand years, robots had been worshipping sort of spiritual, like, gurus of robots. And, they didn't, and and that's the thing is it shouldn't make, I don't know the answers to that. If someone said, okay, so what is that? Why is there a robot that's mm. like, as a sculpture inside a temple, what's going on now? My answer is I don't know. I didn't get a chance to ask them. Because like when you go to a real world location, like in Southeast Asia, there's so much going on that you don't understand. And that's what makes it real. And so with science fiction, I'm trying to do the same thing where, I mean, there is loads of crazy structures in this movie in the backgrounds of shots and i don't know what they are like i can tell you what i think they might be but that was kind of the point is we didn't we if something makes total sense if it's very clear what everything is all the time it doesn't feel real and also it's boring like my favorite thing in like the original star wars is shots like where on mos Eisley, suddenly like some legs will just walk past frame and it won't pull wide to show you what those legs belong to and you and and all the fun of those movies is like just imagining what all these characters, how they even exist, what happened before and after the movie, and and your your imagination races and gets all overexcited about it. And in a weird way, when you get the answers, like you know, when you when you kind of do this sort of like spin off stuff, and you, it's always I think half of it, half the time, it's always better left to the imagination. And and so there's so many things I tried to put in this film where I don't know. I can tell you my guess, but. Lots of details that I don't want to know the answer to. You know, that it's just it was just there when we filmed it. That is kind of strangely refreshing because I, I feel like so many things of this, or at least that feel of this scale, just end up as like big exposition dumps and kind of also bridging to the next installation or you know linking to the things before it. This is this is quite self-contained. I mean. Was there pressure at all to kind of set it up more as something that could be a franchise or could kind of lead to sequels? Because this feels complete to me. Yeah, no, I didn't want to. Um, we never talked about it. 
you know, only as a joke, like created to electric boogaloo, you know, kind of <laughs> thing. Yeah, I, I, I often fall out when, we, when with my girlfriend, when we have a bit of a couple of hours to do something at home or watch something, we spend a good hour of that just deciding what to watch. And she always wants to watch some streaming, you know, TV show. And I always want to watch a movie. And at one point she's like, why don't you want to watch a, a TV show? And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, you're right. Why don't I want to watch a TV show? And it was like, you know what? My favorite part of a story is the end. And I'm, I'm kind of like, and, and, and TVs don't, TV shows don't really end. And it's like my favorite part of a joke is the punchline and everything is building up to that. And so I really like stories and films where self-contained and it's kind of building to this climax. And then there's like a mic drop moment and it hits the credits. Like my favorite films do that really well. And so, yeah, I, do, I really didn't want there to be anything beyond this movie. And I do love the idea. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how people interpret it. But I like films where when you drive home from the cinema, you're arguing about what it meant and, and what happened after the credits rolled, you know, and all that kind of thing. Like that's kind of, it's left to the audience. Like it's a much more interactive experience when you've got something to think about and have an opinion on, you know, it's, that's when it bounces around your head, after, you know, for a long time. Um, yeah, I, I, I have to say I'm fully in agreement with you about the power of endings. I believe that a thing with a bad ending is not possible. The ending is the conceit. Did you have that kind of the way it would end in mind the entire time? Because I know this was what, five years in the making. So yes, the ending was always, everything worked back from this ending. Mm -hmm. There's, I can't really, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but there's essentially a metaphor about a key location in the movie and what it means. And I like the idea that there was a literal situation that was to do with space and the military and, and every, or, you know, the war going on in our movie. But there was this kind of more fairy tale, like misunderstanding by the child and that that also played out to be true. And and I like I like the innocence of the kid and how not quite understanding the world, she sort of misunderstood it, but then was right anyway. Mm -hmm. Really ambiguous. <laughs> but if you've seen it, hopefully it makes sense. There's and in the, there's a line in the trailer that obviously maybe people have seen where it's, where she asks about heaven. So it's all kind of to do with that, and it's all working backwards from that idea. Oh, I, I feel quite teary thinking about the line about all of the kind of talk of heaven. It's very, very moving. Um, sorry, that's a digression. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you also about this idea, like a lot of the a lot something that's kind of followed you both with this film and with monsters is like the idea that you get so much kind of like bang for your buck. You know, like the, the the budgets are always smaller than what it feels like it is on screen. I mean, like how do you sort of that, I mean, that's obviously praise, but um, like, how do you feel about that sort of feedback? Um, no, it's, I mean, it's great, obviously, and it was part of the plan. I do remember when we did Monsters, it was the common compliment, was I can't believe you did that for that budget, which always, to me, because I'm very British about it, and I think everyone hates everything I do, and I hate everything I do. And and so I'd always take that as like, oh, they didn't like it. That was just the best thing they could find to say. <laughs> was like, oh, it looked more than it cost, yeah. But it's, yeah, it was attempts to be monsters on steroids. And and we had loads of money. Like, we had too much money. The um, I mean, the final amount, because of COVID, went up to like about 80 million, allegedly. So that's a fucking shit ton of money. And the, I, I used to say to the people working on the film, no one could ever say on this movie, we can't afford to do that because we only have $80 million, you know, like you can do anything 
with that kind of money. Well, you and so can. the key was. To- I mean, <laughs> I think others can't. <laughs> and everyone can. They just, I don't know. But it's like you get this crew small enough to a certain size, and it's cheaper to fly them anywhere in the world than it is to build a set. Mm-hmm. And so you're just trying to do things that you can be the most, like, you can be a very poor, cheap blockbuster, or you can choose to be the most expensive gorilla movie ever made. And that was our goal. We're like, let's just be, let's try to be like a small indie, but industrial light and magic are doing all the VFX and Hans Zimmer's doing the score. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. Like it was a, trying to find that holy grail. And I don't think we bullseyed it, but I think we got close enough to be proud of, you know, what what happened. But I I do feel like an addictive addicted gambler where I come out of the casino and I'm like, ah, oh, I know how to win next time. You know what I mean? Like, mm. figure it out. I want to go back in and like, it makes you want to make another film and get it even closer. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's exciting time to be a filmmaker. There's all these crazy things on the horizon and like with, uh, you know, AI obviously being a big one. Um, when we were shooting this, or not when we were shooting, when I was doing pre-production on this, I got I had a little tour of a virtual reality soundstage, you know, where you, like a motion, like a volume, you know, like like they use an avatar and things like that. And they had a big poster on the wall and it had, it had how a movie is made. It had like a whole, like, this is the, like a Venn diagram thing. Like, this is how it's all done. And I was looking at it thinking, well, this is all really obvious. I don't know why they got this poster up. And the owner went, oh, I see you noticed the poster. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you know, that's over 100 years old. And then I realized it's a bit tatty and a bit Mm. faded. And then I just thought, like, laughed, like, God, we haven't changed how we make a film in 100 years. We have these all amazing new tools constantly. But everyone who arrives, you know, to make films gets forced to do it the way everyone's ever done it. And it feels like it doesn't have to be everybody, but for some people, there's different ways of making movies. There's like, and when you're on the outside looking in, like we were with Monsters, it was like in your head, it's like without knowing how you're supposed to make a film, I think you should do it like this. This makes the most sense. And then you get told, no, that's not how it's done, kid. You know, it's like, you know, this other way. And then you do the other way and you go, I don't think this is right. Like, I don't think this leads to the best result. And so I, whatever happens in the future now, I don't know what's going to come of any of this. If I get to make another film, I don't want to go back to that other way. Like, I feel very excited about, like, pushing this even further next time. I mean, I do kind of, like, I don't want to, like, psychoanalyze you at, or, or anything, but, like, it does feel that, like, that sort of drive to be pushing yourself to be like, oh, okay, we got close, but we could do even better next time results in the sort of like you know everyone's talking about like how gorgeous this film is like does that like help with the sort of ambition of things because like so many things just feel lazy like you'll just see like a conversation in a blockbuster movie that they've just green screened it because they couldn't get all the actors on time like do you think you're pushing yourself because you just want to get better and better and better every time and not rest on your laurels this sound like therapy doesn't it it does Um, sorry no I'll, I'll say, well, I think what I'd say is I, okay, this is not me fishing for a compliment or being like falsely humble. I feel I fail at everything I do. Mm-hmm. I feel like whatever I do, I see all the faults in it. And then I beat myself up afterwards for not having done it better. And, and so every time you go, I think it's one of those things you can never, ever achieve. Whatever you aim for, you're going to be lucky to get like two thirds of the way there. And so if you aim to make a good movie, you'll make an average movie at best. 
So you have to, at the start of making film, aim to make the greatest movie in the history of cinema. And then you might make a good movie. You know what I mean? You're never going to actually pull that off unless you're James Cameron or Spielberg or someone. But you're never going to pull it off. And so all you do each time when you dust yourself off and get back out the ditch is you go, okay, how do we do better next time? How do we not make fuck-ups, whatever we did? How do we... And you try to... like we. I think cinematography-wise on this one with Greg and Oren, um, we sat for a long time on Zoom um, doing these conversations where we had all this reference of photography. And I basically collected over years I, like, um, for every scene in the movie imagery that I kind of went, this to me feels like what that scene should feel like. Mm-hmm. And we had it, like had too much imagery and then I had to get it down to just a handful for each scene. And we noticed that every time we looked at images and broke it down and went, what's going on here? And it was great to have Greg as part of that because... You make an assumption about how an image is made and you end up kind of getting it wrong. Like normally it's very simple, like very, um, it's one light. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you see those YouTube videos of people trying to recreate something from Blade Runner or something and they've got all these lights everywhere. And then you actually ask the people that did it and they say, oh, it's one light just came through the window and then we just bounced something back. A little yeah. bit. It's like very, very simple. And so it was finding the very simple version of everything. And um, yeah, it was... Uh, we ended up with this little rule book and we did things very differently. Like there was, there's a load of new technology that came out. So just after Star Wars, I sort of dived into buying loads of camera equipment to try. I was like, if I don't get a chance to do this movie the way I want to, I'm just going to do it myself with my own money. And so I started buying all this camera equipment and trying to figure it out. And there's, as everyone knows who tries to make films, there's like gimbals now, like the stabilized shots that you mm-hmm. can hold in your hand. We used this camera called an FX3 by Sony, which is very small it shoots at 12,800 iso so basically it can work in moonlight it's so sensitive to light and that suddenly meant we didn't need these giant lights everywhere so we had like battery operated lights and if we had battery operated lights we could start doing things like i was like well instead of having them on stands and every time you shoot in one direction and you have to turn the other direction you have to move all the stands and it takes 20 minutes why can't we just have people just like they hold the microphone on a on a on a stick on a boom? Oh. Can't we have the lights on a boom? And then as we turn as I turn the camera, they quickly move and like within five seconds we've relit the scene. And so we did all stuff like that. The you know, drone technology had come on a lot, like um on Star Wars, the, the drone we had was like a mini helicopter and it crashed all the time. And now you know, we all know them. you can have one in your pocket that's like cinema resolution and and so there's all these little things that mean you can go about things differently and liberate yourself a bit and we just try to abuse them all basically well i mean clearly in the best way i I really really like the film i'm very excited to see what you do next and um thank you for your time and yeah keep beating yourself up and feeling like you need to push yourself more because i think it just really yields great results don't worry i've already started the beating up thing thank you for supporting the films you've been so kind your publication has always been amazing to me and and they did that one little spread thing where some weird someone did an illustration my head exploding (laughs) and they sent it to us and my girlfriend framed it zipping in her house so it's like a constant reminder of how stupid i am You know, we, we, we do what we can. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, great. Um, have a lovely rest of the day and congrats on, yeah, uh, no, congrats on everything. 
So, Hannah, we went to the Science Museum to watch this last night, which is just like the perfect place to watch a movie like this that is fundamentally asking you to be very pro-science. Surprisingly pro-AI message that came from this one. Yeah, un- I, unfortunate I mean, timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Considering like all the kind of debate over the past year or so, it does, I mean, AI has been a big thing in Hollywood for years, but it does feel like it's kind of ramped up in the past couple of years. Um, and obviously that was kind of the key to the WGA and the SAG-AFTRA strikes uh, is the kind of concerns about AI in art and the place it has. And this film isn't really concerned with those questions, I would say. It's more a kind of film about tolerance and acceptance. And the, the AI is a metaphor for humanity and how humanity should come together, which, you know, I, t- I, I was like, yeah, sure. Like, we've seen that before many a time. I will say, like, I think it looks really great. I think that Gareth Edwards is very good at the spectacle of these like big films, obviously like Rogue One and Godzilla and uh, the kind of monsters films are his like uh, where he came up. Though he he's had a big gap between Rogue One and um, the creator, so he he you know he's been away. He's kind of had time to think and um, come up with this very like detailed world. I think that the kind of the look and the like lived in details of this continent, the supercontinent known as New Asia, where. AI has kind of found a safe haven and become embraced and you see robots kind of living in houses and working in fields and having, you know, family kind of relationships with humans and it's all very cosy and uh, it feels very detailed and I kind of liked the world itself more than the story I was being told because I found the story not particularly compelling or original and I don't know I, I maybe I'm heartless because I was just like thinking all the way through like there's something that Joshua says at the beginning he's like oh it's just programming like that's how what he keeps telling himself and that's just what I kept thinking all the way through I was like yeah but like fundamentally it's still coding like these are not human beings these are robots like I just kept thinking even like even though the robot looks like a very cute little child like it's still a robot like I I I was kind of like dude come on get a grip like though I mean in in you know there's kind of like there's ways they like talk around that and justify the film's internal logic but yeah I don't know I just like I was hoping for something more interesting than I think we actually got from from this film Yes, but what is DNA if not programming meat? Um, so <laughs> maybe we are not so different from these people. Yeah, I mean, obviously, whilst his entire industry is fighting against uh, the plight of AI, he, he mentioned this is like five years in the making. He didn't know that this is the environment that um, this was going to come out to. But beyond that sort of um, unfortunate satire, I mean, it's very clearly a bit about the war on terror, about the war in Vietnam and that stuff. I mean, did that sort of messaging work for you, Elena? No. Um, <laughs> this, I, uh, <laughs> I actually found it very strange and suspect, I would say, the whole imagery of Vietnam in this film set in 2000, either 65 or 2070. 2065 is the first and then it skips forward five, five years. So 2070, we then end up yeah. in 2070. Um, I found it... Ex- it's very soon. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> you know, And that's interesting to make a film that would be set so soon with AI and stuff. I, I was kind of on board with the, the whole idea for like, not the first half, like the first, I don't know, third or whatever, because it's quite a long movie. I was kind of interested and I, yeah, I thought it did look amazing and just the detail of it and the the world and just the way it's shot, like just even just people talking, it's just shot really well. It's like a proper movie. But yeah, as soon as it started being about like John David Washington with this robot bomb child, I was just like, what's going on here? Like, And, and just, and, and before that, the 
the yeah, as I said, the imagery of Vietnam, uh, where so it's not just like they're in Asia and they have helicopters and weapons. It's also they listen to like music from the seventies, and I'm like, what's like this is literally a hundred years before their time. Why are they listening to this? Uh, there have been many wars since. They would listen to different music. I think people in uh, you know in the Middle East right now are probably not listening to this. And I was just like, what is what does this mean? And so I think. It's kind of like just vibes. This whole thing of having Vietnam is literally just because it looks like other films about wars. Okay, that's it. I don't think there's anything more to this. But basically, I'm kind of, I agree with Anna, but it made me, I think it made me more angry than you, Anna, the whole thing. Because I do think there is a connection between this film about AI and the way people are talking about AI today. And this film shows a way that things could go, I think, with AI, which is that because AI is cute and because AI does nice things to us, people are going to be ready to defend AI more than themselves and their own rights and, and their own like social, you know, and, and to use actual social tools to improve existence and so they, and, and there's there's this complete contradiction in this film where basically people who, the people who want to defend ai are saying these robots or they don't obviously they don't call them robots they call them simulants uh, they have treated me better than any human would therefore that's why they want to defend them and i'm like that's the point that's because they're robots they were made to serve you that's that's literally the that's literally what they were made and and at no point does the film even question this at no point does this film discuss the idea of consent from robots it, it talks a lot about the f- freedom of, of the robots, the freedom of the AI. But what does this mean? It doesn't explain what that means at all. All the robots we see, they're very nice because they help humans. They, there's no point where the robots are like, we just want to be among ourselves, our robot selves, and not serve any human. There's no discussion of this at all. So the film, I was kind of hoping for the film to address these questions because that's interesting. And because that's kind of the dilemma that the main character has, John David Washington, you know, because the whole thing is like, I have to kill this robot that could be responsible for the destruction of the human race. But he changed, he doesn't, well, I don't know if he changes his mind, but basically the dilemma for him isn't, is this robot sentient? Does it have a life? Should I respect this life? It's just, this is a robot in the shape of a child. Therefore, I can't kill it. And, and that just really annoyed me. I'm like, are you serious? If that's the level, we're doomed. Like if, if all it takes is for the robot to be in a cute shape, to not destroy a weapon, like, okay, well, end the film there. I don't know. Like, it just made me very angry. It just made me very, very angry. And also, especially after we've had uh, Spielberg's AI that addressed all these questions really beautifully and ahead of its time, you know, AI wasn't as much of a concern at the time or, you know, it seemed more like it would be far away. Now it's very close. Um, and it addressed all these questions. It was the same thing. It was a child that's an AI who wants to be a, a real boy like Pinocchio. And it addressed all those questions in a very intelligent way that wasn't, uh, that was never like, we need to protect this child because he's cute. You know, I don't know. It just made me very angry. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just ranting now, but I just, it's just such a shame because it looks so beautiful. It could be such a great film. It's, it's clearly a lot of money and talent involved. And then it just goes, it just sort of fizzles out about what it's about. And it's just like, you're supposed, because you've been bombarded by these very, very, very violent images of warfare, where most of the people killed, some, some are humans, but some, most of them are robots. They are literally images of like genocide of, of AI, which are, you know, it's horrible to watch, but they're robots. And you're bombarded by these images to the point where you're supposed to kind of feel empathy for the robots. And that's just a shame to, to use all this talent and money and energy to, to, to make this point. It just made me very angry. Anyway. 
Well, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, have, like, as people have been like praising about this, a film that I liked a lot more than uh, you did. But I think it's eighty million dollars that this cost. And oh, like, that's not bad. In contrast, I believe that I think it was Thor: Love and Thunder cost three hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Million. Actually, that's not bad. Um, I take it back. That's not that much money, but it could have been a great film. Like, it just looks the business and it's got good actors and it's got interesting it starts in a very interesting place and then it just goes in a not interesting place for me and so I felt kind of cheated I was just like well why why seduce me with all these incredible locations and and shots and characters and then go there you know I think I it maybe it. needs a like a softer touch I'm I because I what you mentioned about like the idea of like how AI interacts with other AI and kind of like this idea of like AI communities and how they interact with human how they feel about humans is something we don't really get a lot of in the film they yeah the kid just keeps saying we want to be free and it's like but what does freedom look like for you guys like what what would be freedom and it made me think of a lot of films uh, I did think about AI for one but also like this is going to sound a bit weird but um Spike Jones is her like because that whole film is about like the relationship between humans and artificial intelligence and particularly artificial intelligence that can grow and learn and quote unquote feel and that film kind of ends in a place of like AI banding together and be like we we don't want to be here with the humans we we don't like this we want to go somewhere else and be among ourselves like I don't know maybe that feels more like true to me maybe I'm like just so jaded that I'm like well why would a you know, a kind of intellectually superior being choose to stay among the humans, particularly after being subjugated for all these like decades. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it did need a, a little bit of a softer touch in terms of the plot and maybe could have been more like Terence Malick in its kind of like, you know, approach to like these these big ethical questions. Because I, I do think that there's an interesting film here and I do think it looks amazing. Um, but yeah, it just yeah, it just feels like a really conventional story told in a very nice way, like a very you know attractive visual style. There's also a really interesting question the film does not address, which I thought was it's like there, the, staring at you the whole time because basically the the idea is that the West has stopped using AI because AI bombed Los Angeles with a nuclear weapon, so they like banned AI and they are at war with AI. But New Asia still uses AI, and so there's this very interesting thing that happens because when we go to New Asia, you see that many of most of the place is quite rural. It's a bit like Asia, I guess, today, very rural and very poor people, and all these poor people. But, you know, it's literally Vietnam imagery. They need AI. They love AI because AI gives them a better life. And I'm like, well, that's a very interesting question. Like, maybe is that why New Asia keeps using AI? Because these people are so poor that if they can have this robot helping them around the house and like doing stuff that's like very valuable to them. And whereas in the West, we don't need this because we have way better like life, you know, life, like it's easier life. And the film doesn't address this. And instead it's like, no, it's because people in Eurasia are nice to it. Like, why? Why? Why is why is any of this happening? And that would be that would be the question you would want to answer in a film about this. You know, there's the villain is uh, amazingly played by Alison Janney, uh, who's like the boss of the army, which is she's great. I love her. And she's like, we need to kill them because they're robots and they're taking over the world and they bombed Los Angeles and they could bomb the rest of the world. And she, I would love to hear more from her. Like, what are her points? Like, she's not just an evil whatever. Like, she's, there's, they have good reason to do what they're doing. And the film doesn't 
address those questions and there's so many yeah in, in that world there are so many questions that are just unanswered like why is the number one weapon of the west this like huge sort of plain thing that floats over the world and drops bombs how does that sustainable in the world where ai exists where ai could build their own weapons that would destroy this in five seconds i'm like what is the logic and there's, there's just so many of those things like this that are like not resolved. But they have built a thing that can destroy it. In, in yeah, but like they, they could probably just build loads <laughs> of little planes. Guess. I don't know. They could, they could do like, how did it get to the point where this is the weapon that the West has and they rely on this one weapon for their entire survival? I'm like, in what world? Like, in how does that make sense? You know, it's just, and because you have so much time in the film, you have time to think about this stuff. You know, if you did, if the film was like shorter and like more like just, it's very appealing. So there is a point where I was not thinking about this because I was like, this is very appealing to watch. But after a while, I'm like thinking about it and I'm like, okay, when is this going to come up? When are we going to discuss this? Because it's important. This is why, this is the why of everything that's happening. And it's just not mentioned. It's just not discussed. Oh, see, because I found that like it, really interesting, the way that essentially that you've got your kind of imperial US who is kind of used technology to destroy and the other side has sort of embraced that that kind of like nurtures them. And to me, it wasn't really a thing of like AI or not AI. It's just sort of a thing of like, well, we're going to like invest into the intelligence of drone warfare versus kind of outreach to like various communities and stuff. I mean, to be honest, like I've seen some really fascinating takes on like the interiority of AI. Like obviously her is wonderful. I loved After Yang uh, last year and this whole questions about if a robot could be human, would it choose to? I just felt like that's not what we were doing. We were doing like Starship Troopers, you know? It was, it, we were doing kind of like, you just kind of accept these people as being like another species. Like it's very low on the kind of science level of things and it kind of doesn't really seek to explain much of like how all this works so it's more kind of like a critique of imperialism but, it but doesn't also work just though. like a return to like the big splashy mid-budget movies that we don't get that much anymore but why, why so if that's the point why not just make them aliens if they were aliens they were beings they have interiority they have they're like they're like some kind of animal you know like that would make sense but they literally are not they were made by people they were made by humans to yeah, serve but us that's what the thing it's like that we've got like a responsibility for them if but they we were don't aliens, they, then we can it's like a toaster but i suppose that's what district nine did i don't know it's like a toaster you turn it off if you don't need it i don't know i just it's just like it really frustrates me because it's literally not the same as another species it's not the same as aliens it's not the same as anything else it's like and the film is, i think it's one of those things as well it's just playing with like emotionality in this perverse way where it's like the only reason is because they're nice and it's sad to kill things like yes but you're not killing you're, you're destroying a machine like i don't know oh it just like yeah it just lost me in a big way <laughs> after a while but great performances how do you feel at the end of uh, terminator 2 i'm wondering as he descends into the lava you just like eh, just turning him off <laughs> um, I, 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 that's how i feel i'm like eh, he'll be yeah he, had, he it's fine it's fine you know he did what he had to do I love this. The, the amount of sympathy you guys can have for Jigsaw. This. <laughs> <laughs> but this little adorable baby robot that just wants to end up in heaven. No, Cole. Hey. Does nothing uh, for you. Uh, uh, tell you. Tell you a robot I like, the Iron Giant. Now, now that gets me. Yeah, that I gets me. That guy. Well, that guy can stay. A robot and an alien. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, there you go. Exactly. There you go. That's why. <laughs> if that, yeah, that would be a different. That would be a different business. If those, if those alien, if those AI in the film came from another planet, where that's their form of intelligence, whatever. Like that would be way more complicated. And that would be like 
maybe you know i don't know anyway yeah it did not I, work you know me. what when we kind of looked at setting this up i assumed that i was going to be on my own saying that i love sorex and then like unanimous for the creator but no i i I write half. The, I had a great time, and I accept your criticisms, but reject internalizing them. <laughs> so, Hannah, do you want to go first with your in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Yeah, uh, I think it's a four in anticipation. I'd heard some good stuff about this. I will say, like the the critical reception has been very good. I think that Elena and I are maybe in the minority, widely, in that we were just kind of like, mm, I've got some questions about this one. Enjoyment, probably a three. Yeah, I mean, I, I had an okay time watching it. It does feel long. There's a lot of, like, moving around, which I think is not always the most cinematic. Just kind of like, okay, now we're in this location, and now here I have to get to another location. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> another one? Like, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It, it felt very, like, derivative of, of other things I've liked. Like, it felt like The Mandalorian, and, you know, I, I feel a bit sorry for Gareth because it's kind of hard to get away from the Star Wars allegations after you've made one. Um, in retrospect... I'm going to say three for now, but maybe a two. I don't know. Like, this conversation's been very interesting because I think I am maybe between the two of you in kind of where I would say I am with the film. Um, I I don't know. I just think, like, AI is such an interesting topic and I don't think this film is asking the questions that I have and that I think we should be moving on to. It feels like a film from, like, ten years ago, which you can kind of tell that it's had a long gestation period but it's still very much like Gareth and um, I'm very happy that he has made a new film and it is a win for like original storytelling which we don't get that much of Um, and you know original in that it's not an existing franchise at least I don't think the story itself is that original but um, but yeah yeah 4-3-3 for me Elena what about you? Um, I would say anticipation free because I found the trailer incredibly uninspiring it was just so dour and strange and, and I couldn't get what was going on. It was such a strange trailer. I recommend watching it. It's very odd. But I had heard very good things and it did look really good. So I was kind of curious. Enjoyment, I would say also free because yeah, I did enjoy a lot of it. Like the first half or the first third or whatever. I was very, very happy to see a film that had proper like shots and proper images and all that. And it was truly stunning and truly just well shot and and beautifully made and some fun also some fun bits of like editing and and fun bits of like with the music that maybe are a bit cheesy and weird but i actually kind of admired this like boldness and the the hues of music uh but then it really really lost me as i said uh so yeah free and then retrospect too because i think it's low-key evil uh what it's doing and and I'm, i was saying i'm really glad that when i went to see this film the news of the strike ended had just arrived and i was very happy because it would have otherwise the film would have really made me really depressed uh but i was like maybe we're going to win in this fight against these robots and the people who want to defend them so that's my verdict yeah i mean that that is very fair enough there are some real concerns and like the timing of this i don't think anyone would argue was great but yeah i think this just kind of took me back to not even 10 years ago like to the 80s to sort of like et to like blade runner to perhaps when this wasn't like such a tangible threat where we're all going to be swallowed whole because some idiot tech bro makes a coding error 
yeah, I just, I thought it was gorgeous. I thought when I saw the budget for it, that was really, really impressive. Um, and I just had a great time. And I hope this is the sort of thing that does well and at least kind of inspires Hollywood that you don't need to give $300 million to Taika Waititi to have like a huge amount of contempt for his audience. And it seems to me in particular, you can give Gareth Edwards 80. He'll come back with something where he actually looks like he gave a damn the whole way through. I don't think you should give Taika 300,000 either. <laughs> don't give yeah. but actually just to go back on what you're saying like I think it's very interesting to think that Blade Runner and AI two films made more than 20 years ago had more to say and were more grappling with the actual moral and ethical questions of AI in a much more uh, direct way than this film which this film is made now at a time when AI is close by I think that's very interesting and I think that's what makes me really doubt about what's the deal with this movie and why is it trying to make me like AI? Why is it such AI propaganda coming at this time now when AI is arriving? That's, is that's Gareth Edwards AI? Yeah, is he even human? <laughs> <laughs> Did you care when those robots died? Just, just Which you. ones? Blade Runner. Yes, they have a tragic life. They're born to die, you know? They're, they're never alive, really. They're born dead. See, that's the thing. We get, we get, we, we understand, like, how they're in bondage like in this film it's just like the americans keep bombing us and it's like yeah that 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 sucks that really sucks we should work on that but like they they have found like a haven on earth like i i I also just have questions about the government like why are america allowed to do that like why is no other country like hey no (laughs) as a person who grew up in north africa in the middle east i could say this was accurate (laughs) to my lived experience of um american imperialism that this is very true maybe that's what i I, I mean that what's that you don't think we're human okay (laughs) maybe if i just was reading it as like an allegory for that yeah you'll be okay yeah but that's right that's why they should be aliens and not ai because ai is real I'm not not the way they're making it, but aliens aren't real. God, you're <laughs> the best hit people. Don't believe what they found in Mexico. <laughs> anyway, we should move on to a more beloved figure that we can all get behind. Let's revisit the first time we met Jigsaw in 2004. Saw. Photographer Adam Steinheit and oncologist Lawrence Gordon regain consciousness while chains of pipes at either end of a filthy bathroom. As the two men realize that they've been trapped by a sadistic serial killer named Jigsaw, they must complete his perverse puzzle to live. So, Elena, did you watch this in order? Was your first Saw Saw one? Uh, that's a very good question. I assume so, because otherwise, I mean, why why complicate things even more for myself? I think it probably was the first one. Yeah, and it's actually kind of cute watching it now because it's actually such a small tiny movie you know I think it was a Sundance sensation if I remember and yeah it's like all taking place in one room and like oh you know it's kind of cute and also you have proper I mean not proper but you have like uh, famous actors you know Carrie Elwes uh, delivering as usual a delightful performance you know Danny Glover is there and like it's just you know we we haven't I guess the only film where we reached that level again was Spiral uh, and we how that went so yeah it's kind of amazing watching it now because it's kind of it's kind of hard i imagine i mean i I obviously didn't see it when it first came out but it's kind of interesting to to imagine that 
did did anyone involved with this film or even people who liked the film at the time did we know that it would sp- spawn like a really strange franchise of almost direct video level quality sometimes uh with extremely complicated plots and uh kind of create an aesthetic of watching people in traps being tortured <laughs> so yeah it's, i think it's kind of like yeah it's like looking when you watch it now it's kind of like oh cute you know and it's also just really well made and it's got a great crazy aesthetic of like you know they do this thing of editing and like people like freaking out and like overimposing images and stuff that's just really really fun and they do a bit of that in the new one in a in a cute way and also the, the music obviously iconic song song cue that comes out at the right moment in the new film as well we didn't talk about that but yeah i i really like it and it, it holds up I feel like we're talking about this with like the level of affection that most people talk about, like Richard Curtis films. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's lovely. It's lovely to be back. Um, I, I did see this when it first came out, though. It was huge. It was like Blair Witch Project of like, yeah, this thing made for like no money. And it's making, I think, I think it made over like a hundred million dollars. But the ad campaign on a lot of buses was that you have to see Saw, which I'm still not forgiven but yeah I, I i loved it then i love it now but yeah there's something like weirdly nostalgic coming back to I it i can't believe it's it's 20 years old like that's crazy to me i mean i i was a kid when this came out and i remember it being like the film that people would talk about in playground because it's like oh my god obviously we were all like 12 so there was no way we could have seen it but we were like oh my god have you heard about this film saw a guy saws his foot off and now it's like that wouldn't even like register as like a big horror film because this was like before the hostile films before before that kind of like new wave of like extreme violence in horror movies had kind of kicked up again and re-watching it I've re-watched it a few times like since I first saw it I first saw it I don't know like maybe five or six years ago um finally got around to it and um it's just yeah you watch it and you it, I mean it still holds up I think if you don't know the twists because there are some twists in this film I can only imagine how audiences reacted like when they were watching this in the cinema when um Tobin Bell gets up at the end and walks out like uh, that would have blown my tiny mind like just just an incredible reveal um and yeah then at Charlie Clouse's music um Nine Nine Inch Nails have really like done well for themselves in the film space I feel like (laughs) I I find Lee Wannell very charming as a screen presence which is not something that I get to say very often he he doesn't really act anymore since he became a prolific filmmaker in his own right and i wish that james wan would make another horror film because like he's really good at it and i find it much more interesting than whatever he's doing in the aquaman space i do think it's a it's a very entertaining film that you kind of now it's so hard to go back and look at it and like just see it in isolation from what it's become because it's become you know this 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 juggernaut which has just inspired so many other films if you kind of reference saw I would say even people who aren't really into films would probably kind of know what you're talking about. That's the extent like to which the franchise has permeated popular culture. And yeah, it's it's just nice to go back and look at a film as iconic as this and be like, oh no, actually it's it's a well-crafted horror film that does a lot with a little and still even now ho- holds up in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, holds up if, if, if anything has kind of improved i think i mean at the time one of my favorite things is going back with the film club and checking what the rotten tomato scores were like not great really you got like 48 percent yeah maybe Um, this was a sort of time when like horror films were just generally not really mm. liked that much you know 
like I think even I don't know how actually would be that be interesting. I don't know how the Blair Witch Project was what the critics said about it. Like obviously now it's an iconic movie, but I don't know if at the time people really like the critics really bothered with horror that much. I don't know. Also, like I, yeah, as we said, like the new film is really funny and like sort of knowing. And I think you could argue that the original saw is kind of. I mean, all the twists, like the twists you mentioned, it's, it's, I think you're supposed to laugh. Like, you're supposed to be like, what? You know, like, it's, it's kind of... And I can see how some, you know, audiences might not might think that's silly, you know? It's great. It's pleasure. It's joy. Yeah. I mean, the final moment of the original Saw film, where the door slams, is such a dark punch to the heart. And actually, the final moments of Saw X are very uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> I would say feel. <laughs> yeah, I like that contrast between the two. And I do think like all the best horror films, in my opinion, have at least some element of like comedy or humour to them. Like something like The Shining, which people debate if that's a horror film. But like, you know, there were funny moments in that film. And even in Lee Wannell's The Invisible Man, there, there are funny things that happen within that film. <laughs> Um, so I do think like that that humour has kind of always been in the franchise and maybe it's played up a little bit more in, in Sorex, but certainly like the audacious twist in Saw is something that I think no other horror film maybe has been able to kind of carry something off to that impact like in the past two decades. Not that I can think of. Actually, uh, you were saying uh, James Wan needs to do another horror film, but he did Malignant. In, uh, oh my god, from, yes! Which also yes, has some twist. like crazy stuff at the end. <laughs> so it's, I think it's something he likes mm. to do, I guess. God, and it's my, very yeah, funny. It's a very funny film. No, I, I'm sure you love Malignant. I know it wasn't a slight on your part. Uh, great <laughs> film. Wonderful movie. Uh, but yeah, also very funny. Like horrible and very funny, you know? I feel like, you know, with like Ari Aster and everyone, it's all like, it, it's all got very like serious and, uh, you know, like, mm, yes, what are the deep themes here? And obviously like the Halloween franchise was like, oh, it's all about trauma now. And I'm just like, ah, sometimes you just need a maniac and like, and a kind of like, Who's really good at his job? A, ma- a competent <laughs> maniac and a and time management. <laughs> yes, a competent, a maniac. competent maniac. That's what you need. And a script <laughs> delivered with total sincerity. <laughs> like the, everyone in, in Saw is like delivering their line readings as if it's Shakespeare, and I love that. I love that like commitment to it. And um, yeah, I, I just like rewatching it for the podcast. I was just like, oh, I'm just having such a good time with this film and uh, you know it, sometimes it's as simple as that you want to be entertained with a horror film and this is like just such an entertaining film to watch yeah and I just love like thinking back that you think it was made by I think like a million dollars and you know you've got a couple of better known actors that are in it and you basically have Tobin Bell in one scene actually doing anything and like what a absolute coup <laughs> that that guy that you basically just hired to like lie on the floor for most of this movie turned out to be an incredible screen presence and would become a beloved horror icon one of the like great I mean there's been a few kind of stories throughout time of like someone being so good in a role that they decided to write them in like into more of the scripts but like I, I do love it when we hear about those stories where someone was just like so good that the screenwriters realized we need more of this guy we need to see more of him and um I yeah I mean the the origin story of this film as well and that like Lee Wannell thought he had a brain tumour which is kind of where that whole subplot comes from because he had this thought of like wow if I got a brain tumour like what would I do 
you know, with the time before I died. And like, oh this is what he came up with. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this is where he went with that. Um, so yeah, he would I, make yeah. a film about a guy who has only a few weeks to live and who would use this time to kill people. That was his answer. Wow. And then trap a load of writers and directors in a 20-year spiral of trying to figure out what we do now that that timeline has been established. Australians are built different. Like, <laughs> But before we wrap up, Elena, any last thoughts on uh, on this beloved Christmas movie of yours? Oh, actually, that's a good point. I don't know when, what are the two Saw films were set to watch this Christmas. I think it might be go back to Saw 1. So I'm very excited to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's wonderful. It's just a, a delightfully low-key thing where everything began and um yeah as as we said it's just we've got this like nostalgic fondness for it now which is funny but um it's yeah it's, it's still kind of like really tense and like scary and horrible and i kind of like that the so small scale element of the trap which is like the guy tied up to a radiator has to saw and saw off his own leg how beautiful is that the simplicity you know uh, maybe john kramer's masterpiece uh, so yeah it's great I love it. It is funny how things kind of just become like revisiting old friends <laughs> if you just give them enough time. When Billy the Puppet arrived yeah. in Saw X, I nearly like punched the air and let out a little squeal of joy. I was so happy to see him. I, I, I was very happy to see him and also just like charmed by like, they must have been so like pleased with themselves like writing that scene in because uh, it goes on for quite a while. Like he really slowly like enters the shot and like for the characters, it's like, what? what who's this guy? <laughs> they don't know. They I don't know the law um, but for me in the audience I'm having a great time I'm thinking wow John Kramer's puppetry has really come on since the war like he's, he's been working away like he's found time between working on his traps to also work on his like masterful puppetry so I mean he yeah. does say he has several hobbies this is one several of hobbies yeah. several hobbies <laughs> Also, the reactions on ev from everyone in the first Saw film and in the new Saw film are really good. Like, they're just... It's, in the new one, there are some amazing reactions though, to from the people being trapped out. Just, mwah, just so brilliant. Because some of the other films, you know, it's just people screaming the same thing over and over. And this film, is so, it feels like they actually took their time being like, okay, how would I scream in this moment? Like, how would my character feel seeing Billy the Puppet enter the, <laughs> the room? Really good. And also a lot of moments of like, okay, this is horrible, but also you're being really... Yes, exactly. <laughs> they're acknowledging how weird this is, which is great. Like, whereas in some of the other films, they're like, oh no, I'm scared. Instead of like, I'm scared and very confused, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we be I think we become desensitized, don't we? Because obviously like, we've seen the films, you know, you kind of like, after a while you're like, oh yeah, no, okay, I know, I know how it all works. But the characters obviously don't. So there's like a great line reading in the new one where a guy goes, you sick son of a bitch. <laughs> you would say that because it is like it's really messed up it's not like garden variety like oh just like stabbing someone and done with it like it's weird yeah thank you for acknowledging that in coming to the franchise yeah there is a scream of why yes that's so, so good because it's also like yeah sure you're angry sir we scammed you but also what is going on <laughs> you've escalated things with your reaction <laughs> Ah, so, I mean, I don't know that there's much more that we could recommend than like just watching those over and over again. But Hannah, do you want to tell us what your 
one last thing is what is your non-movie recommendation um so i mean technically it's like tangentially movie related i've been reading the novel strangers by tachi yamada which is the basis for the new andrew hay film all of us strangers um which is at the london film festival and it will be out in the uk i believe sometime in the new year it's with andrew scott and paul mescal and i absolutely love the film i I adored it so i decided to read the novel that it's based on which is a japanese novel that was only translated like fairly recently i believe it's it's from the 80s i think the book but anyway as often as the case it didn't get translated for a very long time um and it's this story about a man who revisits his childhood home and finds his parents who have been dead since he was a child are seemingly alive again and um they look exactly the same as they did when they passed away um so it's kind of a ghost story but not in the kind of traditional way um and it's yeah it's just i'm about halfway through it now and the book is really great it's very different from the film as well so it's it's a fun one to kind of read before you watch or after you watch, I guess, um, and kind of compare and contrast like how Andrew Hay has translated and transformed the story through his own kind of like queer lens and his own like British lens, I guess. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's very good. I uh, highly recommend. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm very excited. Um, the buzz around that film has been coming from all the right people for me. So like, I think I'm going to love it. But order wise, book than film, film than book. Um. I watched the film first just because I didn't have time to start the book. Um, I think if you want to kind of go for full emotional like devastation, maybe watch the film first, maybe go in not knowing anything other than what I've just said, because that's not really a spoiler. Um, yeah, because th- there's some stuff that I did not see coming and it really like floored me. Um, but the but yeah, there's enough that's different about the book and the kind of um, tone, I guess, of of the book compared to the film and elena what about you what are you highly recommending to us um so it's the same thing it's uh it's a book but it's tendentially related to film because that's i guess that's how we live uh it's called my face for the world to see by alfred hayes and it's actually a book from 58 and uh it's interesting because i picked it up uh i as i usually do with books i just go to a char- charity shop and i you know i read the back and i pick it up i don't i don't you know i rarely go looking for something specific and it's about uh, a very depressed screenwriter in hollywood so i was like yeah I'm picking that up and it's very slim. So that's another reason. Um, and turns out I, I, I then read uh, the biography of this author and he uh, worked as a screenwriter on like Bicycle Thieves and uh, some of the Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And, you know, he uh, he wrote uh, Paisa and like, he's just a legend and uh, a very interesting life. And then this book is uh, really interesting. I'm not uh, completely done with it. I have a few pages left and... Uh, yeah, it's about this screenwriter writing in a f- first person, so I assume very close to his own experience. And he's just, it's so interesting because it's set in 1958, I assume, you know, the 50s. But it's so, it's kind of strange because it feels like uh, I was kind of like freaked out by how much I could relate to what this guy was was feeling and, and about Hollywood, but just about being you know, a supposedly creative person trying to, you know, make ends meet and just, you know, a bit blasé about the whole uh, film industry and and as in, you know, the contrast between, like, uh, um, being so, someone who's supposed to be creative but also living in a place where you're surrounded by people who are supposed to be creative and then it ends up being something else. And, and basically he uh, he's at a party and he sees a, a, a girl uh, who just walks into the ocean and basically tries to 
kill herself. And then it's about their relationship, but it's a very sort of, you know, none of them are very enthusiastic about it because they're both of them depressed in different ways. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just, I was like, the, the, the prose is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, some of the things at the end that happen are a bit too like, psychoanalytic in the psychoanalysis in the 50s 60s which is a bit like okay like she's just saying the trauma that happened to her and i'm like no that's i don't think that would happen that way um but the prose is absolutely beautiful and uh yeah just a beautiful surprise it, it's it's just great when you when you pick up something by chance and it turns out to be a little gem so yeah i recommend it oh that sounds absolutely incredible. I just also feel like you have much better charity shops near you oh. than I do. Like, mine seems to all just be like biographies of Sharon oh, Osbourne. Man. I'm so well served with charity shops. It's crazy. Like North London is the absolute best for charity shops. It's wild. I think it's because there's lots of like uh, RT types living around here. And then they get old and they die and all their books end up in the charity shops. So it's great for me. Uh, but honestly, yeah, I can't complain. It's amazing. Well, RIP to those yeah, people. But th- but thank thanks you to them for, as well. Um, <laughs> um, so if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, we'll be reviewing the crime thriller Reptile, tech pro comedy Blackberry, and revisiting the Dirties on Film Club. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Elena Lazic. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.